All right. Well, hey, good morning. Glad to be with you here today, as always, worshiping Jesus. If I've not met you, my name is Tad Anderson. I am the uh, lead teaching pastor here uh, at Mosaic Church, and so, man, we are so glad you're here. And uh, just have a, a couple of announcements really quick before we get into the Word. Uh, I guess the first one's not really an announcement. I uh, didn't tell anybody I was going to say this, but, man, I just wanted to celebrate beach baptisms last week, because that was awesome. Yeah, God is so good and faithful. Man, we had... I think I said in service, I was like, we have like eight plus baptisms. We had 11 baptisms. So yeah, man, God has really been at work among this body of believers. Um, and so man, what an awesome uh, thing to see that. So um, Dallas Davidson counted like 100, and, she counted 115 people out at Henderson uh, Beach State Park. So that was, uh, you know, who knows? It may have been more than that, but it was, it was a lot. If you were there, you know, it, it felt like 115 people at least. So uh, that was just a really great turnout. So thanks for, uh, if you came out for that, thanks for being there. And uh, if you are one of the brothers or sisters who profess their faith in Christ and uh, was baptized, man, we just love you. We're so glad that you are a part of our family, but a part of God's family. And we'll talk more about that today. Um, the, really, the only announcement I have is kind of just kind of a quick, just to let you know, thing. Uh, we are at the end of our summer schedule now, uh, and we're moving into our fall schedule. Uh, we love to do things together as a church family. Obviously, uh, our community groups are little pockets of the body that uh, gather weekly in homes for discipleship. Uh, uh, but, you know, from, from baptisms to just hanging out together and, and having fun uh, outside of this gathering to uh, getting together for focused times of prayer or serving the community, we, we really try to do something collectively as a body uh, about once a month if we can. You know, sometimes it's more than that. Uh, but anyway, so you'll, you'll hear us communicate. Did this go up here? Was there a slide? Anyway, there's a, there is a fall schedule. It'll go, it's, I think it's on the app. Maybe it'll go on a slide. I don't know. But we'll definitely be communicating those things more to you in the days ahead. So just stay um, alert of those things, and we will, uh, we'll let you know what we'll, what we'll be doing next. So, All right. Well, we are uh, we're really cooking now, uh, so to speak, in our sermon series through Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're nearly halfway through, and we've covered some uh, just massively important gospel concepts thus far. Um, I, I don't know about you, but the Lord is uh, really graciously using this series to remind me of things that I already know, but just in fresh and very needed ways. I hope it's been impactful to you so far as well. Uh, that said, today uh, we're turning a corner, okay? Uh, don't worry, the same theme of God's incredible grace is still at the forefront, but uh, in verse 12 of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul makes a clear shift from what the Spirit has done in and for us into, just a slight turn here, okay, how we practically get in line with the Spirit's work in and for us. And, and in that shift, Paul is going to present a very important, very serious, uh, practical aspect of our new life in Christ. So as always, let's read it, followed by a prayer uh, for God's help, which we desperately need, I desperately need uh, followed by my very best attempt to explain it to you in a helpful way. So uh, let's go. We'll be uh, discussing verses 12 through 17, as has been our habit. Let's start back in verse 1, because I think that really helps for sake of context. Romans 8 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh 
is hostile to God, for it it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Father, your grace is so good. It is difficult to fathom. But nevertheless, we rejoice, God, in the work that you are doing among this body of believers for your glory and our joy. We thank you for the privilege of being able to come together for all variations, God, of discipleship, fellowship, service, and worship. And now, Lord, we ask for your gracious help as we open your word with the desire of hearing what you have to say to us. And not only to hear it, but to be moved by it in genuine ways with the help of your indwelling Holy Spirit. God, I confess, I cannot teach, and no one in this room can apply gospel teaching without your help. We are simply branches. Christ is divine. And so we need the divine abiding connection of the Spirit, that we might draw in the life that there is to be had in your word. So please, we pray, do that for us. We are so in awe of the things we've read in Romans 8 together up until today. And so I pray that that would continue. And as we understand rightly Our role in conjunction with the Spirit, would you help us to walk in it? Not in our own strength that's bound to fail, but in the strength that only you supply. The power of Christ in us that never runs out. Lord, I I confess this text is not an easy text to preach, but it is a crucial one. And so would all who hear be helped by you to receive it and apply it, myself included, however may be necessary. Lord, open eyes, encourage, convict, and strengthen hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, let me start off this way. In retrospect, nothing quite changed my life like becoming a dad. From the moment that I held our our first child, our first son, uh, everything became new. On, on one hand, you know, life became sweeter and more beautiful and, and precious. And on the other hand, though, the, the world became darker and seemingly more dangerous. As a general rule of thumb, they say that people tend to become more conservative uh, once they become parents because they then have something to conserve or protect in a profound way that they had not previously experienced. And I would say that that has been true for me. Uh, When I became a dad, uh, I didn't just change uh, in the sense that I began uh, losing my hair and and gaining weight in my midsection and uh, telling really corny jokes, though somehow all of those offensive stereotypes also became true about me. Um, But deeper than that, uh, who I was 
changed. I was no longer just Tad. But now, to four little people, I'm Dad. Tad Daddy, if you will. That's what Amy calls me, um, if you were wanting to know that. That's really personal. But, um, but seriously, like what I cared about most, my, my values began to change. How I saw the world around me, everything changed and is now irreversibly changed from my perspective. I bring this up as a way to help us jump into, merge into what I think our passage puts forward to us this morning. If you're a parent, then there's no doubt that all I just said is your experience as well. If you're not a parent, that's okay, because I think you'll still be able to make the connection. But um, after really wrestling with our text, I think that the overarching idea here is that for those who have been truly saved, born again, for those who have genuinely become Christians, if you were to look backward at who you were prior to Jesus and then forward to now after beginning to follow Jesus, everything has changed. Everything has changed. In Christ, the Spirit has made us new people with new privileges, new power, and new priorities. So what I want to do today is just break down this one point. I'll do that by running through each key uh, word in order to uh, expound on the, the newness factor of each one, how we're new people, what our new privileges are, what our new power is, and what our new priorities look like. That said, uh, if you've gotten really used to me moving through a passage verse by verse, sorry, uh, sometimes because of the way Paul writes and the flow of his ideas, it, it just makes better sense to kind of rearrange that order a bit, not because I'm changing or editing what he says, but because I want you to grasp the logic that is behind what he's saying, okay? Uh, if that doesn't make sense now, I think it will as we get going, all right? So let's begin with the reality that we have become new people, new people. Our text says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so what I mean when I say that who we are as people has changed uh, is that we're no longer enemies of God but children of God. We're no longer enemies of God, but we are children of God. Now, um, I see that you're unmoved. Let's be careful here because uh, you're like, we know that, right? Like, let's be careful because we may have a tendency to shrug off sermon points that we believe ourselves to already be very familiar with intellectually, okay? Uh, especially in the Bible Belt, okay, where we live, where everyone intuitively knows Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, right. So, and I mean, just, that's the most monumental truth in the world. But we're bored with it, right? We're like, tell me something deep, important, I've never heard before, preacher. But friends, I want to remind you this morning that there is nothing deeper and more important than the fact that before Christ, down to the deepest fiber of our being, we were sinners without a clue about what we were doing. But in our spiritual cluelessness, each of us were also setting ourselves up as the most important person in our own lives. And in so doing, we had become enemies with the very God who made us for his own glory. And so we were lost 
and alone, though we may not have even realized it because we were so full of pride and and pent-up hostility in our hearts towards God, using his stuff and dishonoring him with it, all the while, unknowingly, in our blindness, running towards a cliff of eternal destruction. It was at this point when God could have looked down upon our shameful, pathetic, rebellious state and been totally justified to say, if separation from me and everything good forever is what you really want, then get on with your bad little selves. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. Instead, he He looked upon our pitiable estate and was moved with compassion and saw us as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, orphans without a father to care for them. And instead, at an unimaginably great cost to himself, God stepped in when we had burned every bridge and offered us a gracious pathway back. In Romans 5, this is the way it says it. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you see, God did not just make a way for us to evade punishment by writing it off, allowing us to just go on in our sin and sweeping it under the rug, but being perfectly righteous and unwilling to allow the injustice of our sin to stand while simultaneously being perfectly loving and unwilling to allow us to go headlong into eternal death, God looked at us and said, I want better for you than this. I want better for you than this. And so I'm going to make you mine and show you what life is really meant to be like. And in the greatest act of love imaginable, God gave his only son to pay the price for our adoption. Anyone with any experience with adoption knows that it can be incredibly expensive. But the most expensive adoption of all time was your own adoption, my adoption, our spiritual adoption. God paid the highest possible price by giving up the most valuable thing to himself, his own perfectly righteous son, so that we, those sinners who had set themselves up as his enemies, could become sons and daughters. J.I. Packer said, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. Is this deep enough for you to rejoice in today? Maybe the, the real problem is that it's, it's too deep for us to fathom. And that's why we're not constantly just shouting for joy. Like, do we get this? Because of our sinful enemy status before Christ... We deserve nothing other than to be eternally castigated and pummeled under the white 
hot wrath of God's fury towards all who would dare to rebel against his sovereign goodness. And instead, in an act of inconceivable mercy, he graciously drew us into himself and freely gave us the opportunity to share, get this, to share in the same status of sonship as Christ himself. The same status of sonship as Christ himself. Do you know that phrase, Abba, Father, that we read? Paul says in the spirit of adoption, we cry, Abba, Father. First of all, Abba is the Aramaic word that children would use to address their earthly dads in the first century. So to say that we can now address God with that kind of familiarity is amazing. But that's not the only reason that Paul uses this phrase. It's because in Mark's gospel, this is the phrase that Jesus himself uses to cry out to God the Father when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, dreading what he knows is to come. Are you following the logic here? Paul is implying that as secure as Jesus himself is in the love and care and esteem of God the Father, now you are. As secure as Jesus himself is in the love and care and esteem of God the Father, now you are. Because of what Jesus accomplished for you in the gospel, your familial relationship with God the Father now bears the same intimate closeness as Jesus' familial relationship with God the Father. This is radical. This is radical. Some of you might know It's radical to me. Some of us may know that we are a child of God, but we don't get it. In Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God, and you now possess all of the rights and privileges and inheritance of Christ himself. This is why we sing. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And so the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This makes us totally new people. Totally new people. So, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is not merely an old, tired kid's song. It's actually an incredibly important and deep, deep, deep gospel doctrine. Maybe you'll go home from church today singing it for yourself. Because of the love of Christ, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are blood-bought, beloved children of God. And that changes everything for the better. So with that established as the most monumental change, the, the change of our very identity, the next resulting change flows out of this identity. And we've already been hitting on it. It's that uh, as completely new people, we're given new privileges. We're no longer slaves to sin but heirs with Christ of God's kingdom. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are now heirs with Christ of God's kingdom. As mind-blowing as the first point was, this one really follows suit. You see, uh, as stark and glorious of a contrast as it is to realize that we've gone from enemies to children uh, in God's eyes, the same is true here, okay? Uh, In our time as enemies of God, while we thought we were really after our own freedom, The truth is, we had become enslaved to the the desires of the flesh, okay? 
My body, my choice. This is not the new slogan of pro-choice protesters. Do you know that? This is the old, tired, worn-out, angry slogan of sinful humanity ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> that phrase has been around a while, my body, my choice. But while that mentality believes that it's making a demand for free will, it's actually the identifier of all who are in serious bondage. Okay. Martin Luther, in his famous work, The Bondage of the Will, says, free will without God's grace is not free will at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil since it cannot turn itself to good. And thus Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, maybe you're hearing that thinking, cool, 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 cool. Uh, what's that mean? <laughs> um, in order to begin understanding what it means, you should understand that heaven in the Christian faith is often defined by Jesus and his apostles as the kingdom of God. Do you know that? Okay, now you do. Now you do. That's good. Okay, so heaven in the Christian faith is often defined by Jesus and his apostles as the kingdom of God because heaven is actually not going to be in kind of ethereal place or we are just disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds with little baby Cupid-looking angels, okay? That sounds super lame, by the way. So get that out of your head. Get that out of there for what you associate with heaven, okay? <laughs> The scriptures actually say that Jesus is going to return in awesome glory to judge the living and the dead. And then he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth with a refining fire that will burn up all of the effects of sin, leaving only what's good, right, and beautiful, where he is the perfect, loving, just, merciful king that all humanity desires, who, who his people will be able to then know, enjoy, and worship forever. That's heaven. I want to go there. I want to be there. But don't take my word for it. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, uh, since all these things are thus, all these things, that's all these things, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And get this, to be a Christian is to already be a citizen of that kingdom. <laughs> Colossians 1 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. <laughs> so in order to understand what it means to be heirs with Christ, you first need to understand that the kingdom of Christ is coming. It's already beginning to break out into this world in the hearts of those who by the spirit begin to follow him as their savior, Lord, and king. You see it? It's breaking out all around you. But listen to this. When Christ returns, not only will we be citizens of his kingdom, we're going to reign with him in his kingdom. We're going to reign with him in his kingdom. I'm not going to pretend to fully understand this myself, but the Bible says it. Revelation 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're going to want to open that door. Here's why. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. 
To be honest, I think that if you feel like, wow, how do I get there? I think these realities are largely beyond our ability to, to grasp. Okay. 1 Corinthians 2 says, What no eye has seen and no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. But that said, considering that uh, this is our text for this week, it's interesting. Interesting that Queen Elizabeth uh, just passed away on, on Friday uh, because that situation may be helpful for us. Uh, I'm not happy that the queen died. What a tremendous woman she was, okay? But it may be helpful for us to think through. Did you know that she was the longest reigning British monarch? It's incredible. Can you imagine the life she lived? It's just so different, really, I mean, especially now, than American presidents. There's just always been such a great, at least perceived, dignity and grace about the Queen of England, but also immense privilege and wealth. Like, the royal family is, in total, worth about $30 billion. Anyway, I just couldn't help but feel... I mean, I've read more about him now, and I don't know if I feel this way, but I just couldn't help at first to feel a little sorry for King Charles III. <laughs> Certainly, it's no small thing to become the king of the United Kingdom, but his kingship is just a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? He's been the heir to the throne since he was three years old, and now he's 73. So the reality is he knows at the start that his reign will be nowhere near as long and nowhere near as prestigious as his mother's 70-year reign was, right? But here's the thing, church. When Christ returns, no one will share that sentiment about us. But all who see, us included, will be in absolute awe of the amazing privilege that we possess, having God as our Father and Christ as our older brother, with whom we will reign in perfect peace and joy and dignity forever. Amen. Now, it's at this point that we must turn to the piece of our text that is not more serious, but definitely more solemn. And my hope is that as we walk through it, you'll see why I set it up this way. In verse 13, we find out that in Christ, not only has the Spirit made us new people with new privileges, but he's also given us new power. Okay. New power to follow God's leadership and to kill sin. Okay. New power to follow God's leadership and to kill sin. Verse 13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And the reason that I made verse 13 the third sub-point today, when it's actually the second verse out of six verses, is because of how Paul wants us to understand this, okay? Putting sin to death is an imperative in the Christian life. That means... It must be done. It must be done. But killing sin is not a mechanism for earning. Okay? It's not a mechanism for earning. Like, kill sin so that you can receive the gift of eternal life. But rather, killing sin is the new spiritual reflex that flows out of the new birth. We kill sin because the Spirit has already made us new people with the new privilege of eternal life. Okay. I always want to make that distinction so as to guard against legalism and the attempt to white-knuckle behavioral modification. That's not what we're after. That's not what we're after. We're after new, sanctified lives motivated by the gospel, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're after. 2 Corinthians 7.1, the apostle says to the Corinthian church, since we have these promises, beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the same idea of verse 13. Since we have been made new people, from enemies of God to beloved blood-bought children of God, and since we have been given new privileges, no longer slaves, but heirs and with Christ of the kingdom of God, since all these glorious things are true, let us live like they're true. Let us live like they are true and put sin to death. Are, are you following me? Now, if, if you've been here since we started the series, you might be thinking, man, this has been like such a sweet, comforting series. And, and now it feels like this hard swing over into language about killing and putting to death, right? But what I think this text forces us to come to grips with is that Christianity is not able to be practiced casually or with a laissez-faire attitude. Christianity is serious. It's serious. Ray Ortland says, we are not just adding Jesus to an unexamined life. Okay. We're not just adding Jesus to an unexamined life. And up until now in Romans 8, we have seen how serious God is about us having life, haven't we? God is serious about us having life and fullness of joy and the grace that we've received in Christ by the Spirit. But today what we're seeing is that if we are serious about having joy in the life of the Spirit, and if we are serious about the grace of God, then we will also be serious about eliminating any known threat to that joy. Amen? We'll be serious about eliminating any known threat to our joy by not only viewing grace as forgiveness of sin. It is that. We are forgiven of sin by the grace of God. But grace is also power. You know that? It's power to cut sin out of our lives by whatever means necessary. Okay. This is why I began with the analogy of becoming a parent. Because becoming a dad changed everything for me. And in changing everything for me, it produced in me a kind of love for another human being that's unmatched. It's unmatched. I ferociously love my kids. And because I ferociously love my kids, there are correlating inclinations in me to protect my kids. And while I have never in my life been a violent person, punched a kid in third grade one time, okay? <laughs> while I've never been a violent person, the, the, the realization that you come to as a parent is that there is a kind of love that will resort to deadly violence in a situation that requires you to protect what is most precious to you. You tracking with me on that? I know the parents are. I know you are. And here's why I've led you down this path. This is the same kind of paradigm that Christians are called to in regards to sin. The love of Christ for us in the gospel is the supreme love of the universe. We just sang this. There's no greater love and so the importance of our relationship with Christ exceeds even that of our relationship with our own children. Do you know that? 
And so, in the life of the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, most gracious Christian, there will be a deadly seriousness when it comes to sin and a cold, completely unsympathetic willingness to kill anything in their heart that would pose a threat to their relationship with Christ. Because just like if a predatory animal got loose in your house, you would not let it cuddle up on the couch, licking its lips while your kids watch Paw Patrol. But you would put a bullet in it, Dad, right? You would put a bullet in it. The same should be true for sin. God says, it is crouching, and its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Early in, earlier in Romans, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That means, no. <laughs> How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that's your arms and your legs and your head and every part of you, okay, your members. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, in humanistic in a humanistic, psychologized world outside the church, people are allergic to this kind of rationale. <laughs> you know that? If there's some harmful behavior that you, you're habitually committing, the wisdom of the world says it's not really your fault. <laughs> it's probably just because something, you know, happened to you in your past, and what you really need is just some kind of secular therapy um, to heal your self-esteem, Right? But this is not how the Bible talks about sin. When it comes to sin, the Bible says, stop it. Right? The Bible says, stop it. Don't do it anymore. Put it to death. And the reason that Scripture speaks that way about sin is because if you have the Holy Spirit in you, we have to pull this all the way through. Pull it all the way through Romans and up into Romans 8 that we've already read. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you truly have the power to be done with sin. You have the power to be done with sin. So many followers of Christ today, unfortunately, are limping through life, regretting their sin, but acting like it has some kind of death grip on them. Friends, it doesn't. It doesn't. Our text says we are no longer debtors to the flesh. Sure, it will make deadly demands of you. And it will have thoughts like, oh, come on. Oh, come on. Have another piece of cake. Have a few more drinks. Have a time of perusing explicit websites. Let your guard down. Get into some juicy gossip. Put that new, expensive, but totally unnecessary thing you want on a credit card. Come on. You owe this to yourself. The flesh will say that. It will say that. You owe it to yourself. But Paul is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't owe the flesh squat. That's what Paul's saying. All the flesh has ever done for you has gotten you into trouble and shame. And now the Spirit has set us free 
to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. (laughs) In Galatians, Paul says it like this, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, if you're, if you're with me on the seriousness of Christianity, and thus the imperative to kill sin from Romans 8, but your question is just like, how? Right? If that's your question, how? I've put a short process in your notes that I adapted from a book called The Mortification of Sin by uh, Puritan pastor John Owen, who famously quipped, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Okay, That's about the best summary of Romans 8.13 anyone could give. And so uh, here's what he says it looks like to be practically killing sin. If you didn't like to talk about killing sin, you're really not going to like this. Sorry, but it's I'm not sorry because we, we need to consider these things. And I've considered them from a Puritan perspective for your sake today. And anyone who's read Puritans... You're welcome. All right. So the first thing he says is consider the severity, consequences, and punishment of sin. Consider the severity, consequences, and punishment of sin. In other words, consider and meditate deeply on all that I've pretty much just said to you. Consider the reality of sin in your life, that you have allowed it for too long to go on living in the dark recesses of your heart. And that the things it tries to compel you to do are truly wicked and would have disastrous implications for your life if you continue to let it go unchecked. Okay, Think about the consequences for your sin that only you know that sometimes you flirt with in your heart what it would do to your marriage, how it would hurt your children, how it could spiral out of control and make a train wreck of your future. The Bible is not joking about sin, church. The Bible's not joking. Sin has been designed by the enemy of your soul to destroy you, and it has the capacity to wound everyone that you love. If there's a rattlesnake in your backyard, you don't say, oh, let's name him and bring him inside and make him a family pet. You get your family inside and you bash its skull with a shovel until the life has left its body. Am I right? Okay. So it is with sin. We are not to toy with it and try to tame it. It wants to kill you. It wants to kill you. And on on top of the earthly consequences, God tells us that there are eternal punishments for all who determine to stoke a sordid love affair with it. Death and separation from God. That's the end of sin. Now, once you've considered these things, Owen says that you'll be in the right frame of mind to own your guilt fully and long for true deliverance. Once you see sin and its true ugliness, it should be natural to feel guilt over the fact that as a follower of Christ, you would ever desire such a thing. That's not to say that there's condemnation for you. There's not. Romans 8.1, we know that. But when we find a tendency to desire sin instead of righteousness, we should feel the sad weight of that and our own guiltiness for allowing ourselves to go there. Okay. And when we do, this should drive us to the Lord in prayer and desperate longing to be delivered out of these things that dishonor him, harm us, and hinder our relationship. If you want to see what that looks like, study some of the penitential psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, and a few others, and enter into the desperation of the psalmist who is grieved over his sin and desires to be rid of it completely. Again, I want to reiterate, there's still no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died to rid you of your shame for good, but he also died 
that you might crucify your flesh and say no to sin. From there, after you've considered the severe consequences for your sin and allowed yourself to feel the guilt and desperation for deliverance, Owen says, it's time to be on guard and ready to fight at all times. Okay? Christians who have done the hard and painful work of gaining a right estimation of their own indwelling sin develop a mindset that they don't want to get tangled up in that mess anymore. Anybody? We don't want to get tangled up in that mess anymore. So, so much so that we remain vigilant every day, realizing that sin is deceptive. And when we grow complacent, that's when it tends to crop back up and start the war in our flesh all over again with renewed vigor as though it had never been killed in the first place. Am I the only one? Sin grows, let me say it like we'll all understand. Sin grows like a weed in Florida in the lawn with no weed and feed. You feel me? I thought so. The minute you let your guard down, it'll be back on the loose trying to take over everything. And so when it comes to sin, we must be on guard at all times, ready to fight with the commands and the promises of Scripture and a ruthless willingness to get rid of anything that may give sin leeway in our life. That show that you used to love with sexuality and nudity, it needs to go, friend. It needs to go. That podcast you used to listen to every day that you know, it's informative, but it, it, it puts you in a mean and sarcastic frame of mind. Find a new one. Those old songs from high school that give you all the feels, but they have explicit and suggestive lyrics. Why keep listening? That Netflix show that boasts in a worldly lifestyle and takes your eyes off of Christ. Why even watch it? Why watch it? We need to be on guard and ready to fight at all times. And finally, Owen says that as we, as we often do, the best defense is a good offense. So meditate on the glory of God and refuse to be comforted except by him. Not by John Owen, by God, okay? Um, make sure you're staying in the word. Don't miss opportunities to be gathered with your church family on Sunday mornings, being edified and strengthened through corporate worship. Don't skip out on community group where your brothers and sisters in Christ are gathered for discipleship and prayer for one another. Put yourself in frequent situations where you are going to be able to see and savor the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put yourself in those situations. And this is important. In regards to your sin, refuse to allow the things of the world to give you superficial comfort and lull you out of seriousness in your faith. If we're not careful, we can easily allow ourselves to feel at peace regarding sin because we're so consumed with the world that we, we grow totally desensitized to it. Remember, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So pursue the comfort of Christ alone through fellowship with him in the word and prayer and in worship with the saints. I'm almost done, I promise. I know this is, our service has gone long, but this is incredibly important that we understand. So before we move on to our final point, and that one will be short, <clears throat> let me just give you one final appeal in line with this third point. As you survey your heart and mind right now, if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then no one needs to tell you if there is sin in your life that you need to be diligent to put to death. No one needs to tell you if you have the Spirit. You know why? Because he's telling you right now. He's telling you right now. So my appeal to you is simply this. Why not start being done with that nasty thing today? Why not start being done with that thing today? The ugly thing that is nagging your conscience, but you just haven't 
fully let go of it, why not dig in and start to fight today and put that thing to death in Christ by the Spirit? Why not today? Why not just say no to the misery of half-hearted devotion to Christ and instead say yes to the joy of life that you can have in obedience as you strive to walk in the identity of God's blood-bought son or daughter who is no longer enslaved? Why not today? Why not make that decision today? If you want to do that, the message of Romans 8 is that because of the gospel and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that is 100% possible. It's possible today. And we would love to walk with you every step of the way. I won't promise you, and please don't mishear me, I won't promise you it's going to be easy or painless. I certainly I'm not promising you perfection this side of eternity, okay? So don't hear me talking about perfection. But I can promise you a church family who will love you, who it is safe to confide in because they understand and are engaged in the same exact fight. And thus who will fight with you in a unified pursuit of our new priorities the will of God for the glory of Christ. Verse 17 ends like this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I wanted to spend longer here, but I got a little too into John Owen. Um, (laughs) So we're not gonna get into all the realities of suffering today. And we're gonna talk about that next week. But one commentator sums it up this way. He says, To suffer with Christ is to bear the discomfort that comes with faithfulness to him, whether that's inner struggle or punishment inflicted from outside. The truth is that as we live our lives by the Spirit and killing sin, there's a kind of daily suffering that we experience, and it's the suffering of taking up our cross and dying to ourselves with our eyes fixed on eternity with Jesus Because of the gospel, not only do we have new privileges and new power, but we have totally new priorities. And those priorities are to do the will of God for our lives now for the sake of what we know is coming at the return of Christ. And again, just like becoming a parent changes everything and causes you to reevaluate what really matters, so the Christian faith will cause an even greater reevaluation of our lives. What is worth your time? What is worth your resources? What is worth your energy? King Jesus, let me tell you, is coming back. He's coming back. And so we think about everything in light of that. We begin to give more and more of ourselves to things with eternal significance and less and less to things that really are not going to matter in the end. The Apostle Paul says it this way. I'll close with this. Band, y'all can come back up. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Get this last verse, verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is the mindset of someone who the Spirit has made new. And given new privileges, new power, and new priorities. Is that your mindset? my only question. Is that your mindset? I pray that it is. I pray that you would 
meditate and think about whether or not it is. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. And Father, sometimes the passages of Scripture that we have to go through require long <laughs> exegetical times of trying to figure out what it means, and it's, it's challenging, God. It presses on us. But God, we know that in these things, God, you are doing it for our good. You're seeking to cut away all of the things that would bring harm to our souls. That's why you call us to put sin to death by the Spirit. God, I pray that if there's anyone in here today, first of all, who wants to begin following Christ for the first time, they haven't understood, and now they do. God, the gospel, you've opened their eyes. God, would they, would they make that decision today? But God, for the rest of us who are following you, would we examine our hearts and minds and see whether we are being diligent in this imperative to kill sin? It's absolutely necessary, God, we know from your word. And so would you empower us? Would you strengthen us? Would you convict us where necessary and help us to do that very thing for our greater joy and for your glory in our lives? It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.